The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at The Spectator. The online safety bill is about to pass its third reading at the House of Lords, and at the 11th hour, Lord Peers have tried to put in measures that will mean tech companies like WhatsApp will have to give over encrypted messaging. And at the same time, the Digital Services Act is passing through in the EU, and all the while, Facial recognition is coming up, and we've just seen that the Home Office are being lobbying for facial recognition spy companies in the UK. And uh, here to discuss all that and a lot more is the director of Big Brother Watch, Silky Carlo. Silky, thank you so much for coming to speak with me. Thanks for having me. So I am hoping to get an education in some of these things aforementioned, but I wondered if we could start, if you, if you don't mind telling me and, and listeners and viewers a little bit about your work at Big Brother Watch and how you came to be interested in in this world of surveillance and free speech issues. Mm -hmm. Well, Big Brother Watch is a UK privacy and civil liberties campaign organisation. We're non-profit, non-partisan, and we work particularly at the intersection of technology and human rights, which is where we see an enormous increase in surveillance and now increasingly censorship. So we are tasked with trying to be part of civil society that helps to defend our liberal traditions and that advances civil liberties um, in a time where technology makes suppressing them very much easier. Mm-hmm. And I came into this work, I think, because, you know, I grew up with a very keen sense of civil liberties because I grew up, I think, as did you in the counter-terror years, you know, post 9-11, when our civil liberties were being eradicated like never before. And then add to that the growth of the internet and technologies to intercept communications, monitor the internet. So much has changed. Mm. Of course, then we had a string of very high profile whistleblowers kind of lift the lid on what the intelligence agencies were doing and how unchecked the powers were. Um, Snowden and Assange. Exactly. Uh-huh. And that's where my career in this world really started was advocating around those disclosures and for those individuals. Uh, So back then we were told we need to give up our liberties so that they can monitor terrorists wherever they may be and now the conversation is about protecting children and it's an important conversation to have so I hope we can get into that but um, before doing that firstly I owe you an apology because I've done a couple of episodes which have basically been based on your Ministry of Truth report from the beginning of this year where you uncovered the rapid response unit, the counter disinformation unit, the government information cell, intelligence and communications unit and the 77th brigade. I owe you credit for that which I don't think I properly gave you in previous episodes and I encourage listeners and viewers to find that report on the Big Brother Watch website but you've also spoken it at length and on uh, I've heard some great interviews with Trigonometry and Russell Brand so That I really encourage people to listen to. I think it's the kind of British arm of the censorship industrial complex. And I've talked a lot about 
that stuff with people like my mutual friend Michael Schellenberger and it's a big piece and even not just the British but for the whole world it's an important piece of that mm-hmm. um, so but seeing as that you've already spoken about that maybe we won't go into that and I apologize for not crediting not, you not before. at all no it's great to have it referenced and, and it's great that it is being discussed I think that it is filtering through into the political discussion I mean it's exactly what we want so that's great wonderful well can we start please with the online safety bill mm. it's gone through many iterations it's about to pass what are the basics what is it that is about to pass and how does that affect me and you the online safety bill is the first comprehensive piece of legislation that aims to kind of formalize the relationship between the state and social media companies and in essence what it does is creates some legal duties on large social media companies particularly around this notion of a duty of care and so social media companies in the UK now have a series of legal obligations as to what they must and must not do and on the surface of it some of this sounds very sensible. So things like they must take down illegal content and there are rules about they have to make policies for how they take down illegal content, how quickly they do it, can can they prevent it going online in the first place, things like that, which sounds sensible. And to, to some degree it is. I mean, certainly you need to have them involved with law enforcement to some degree. But what the bill does is effectively makes these private companies private police. So they're adjudicating mm-hmm. what's unlawful. Mm-hmm. And actually, there is no law enforcement process. So it's not like they see something that's concerning that looks like it's very much unlawful. And mm-hmm. there's plenty of it online. We all know about child sexual exploitation and really serious issues. It's not like what the bill does is create a process whereby that's forwarded to the police and the police work the platforms. And no, it's it's kind of like a shove it under the carpet approach. So the companies have to deal with it themselves. They have to police it themselves. They have to monitor these networks that have billions of communications, find this stuff, get rid of it, or even prevent people from seeing it. So I think the intentions were in places good. The upshot is that we kind of have privatised policing are online. They, are they being obligated to take down what the British government or British law considers illegal? So uh, this sounds similar to what the CDU were doing, the Counter Disinformation Unit, where they were flagging, they were uh, favoured flaggers, I think is the term. Was that favoured? Trusted, trusted flaggers. flaggers. Yeah. And they were, with our tax money, they were telling big tech what content could be misinformation, disinformation, and should be taken down within their rules. Mm -hmm. So how is this different? Is this obligating those tech companies to take that, the content down as per the wishes, or or is it telling the tech companies what is already within their rules not acceptable and to take it down? Well, they are obliged to do that. I mean, if you receive a legal request from a public authority, you have to comply with it. This goes some step further. It effectively deputises foreign private media companies to police domestic speech and content. I think on the most extreme end of things, of where you think about the most manifestly, obviously illegal content, that might not be too controversial a task, although I would have liked to see something more about the police involvement and how this becomes a a proper judicial process rather than just a completely privatised one. But actually, it's a bit more expansive than that. And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, about how now we have so many anti-protest laws 
what will this mean in relation to what kind of content can stay online about certain types of protest and protest organising. I mean, there are some really blurry... Nothing's more precious than speech and the right to free speech and the right to share information and, and receive information freely. I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of kind of corporatizing what is fundamentally a, a human right by exporting that responsibility to foreign companies. Where it gets really controversial, of course, is where the government was seeking to go even further and create this whole notion of legal but harmful mm -hmm. speech that was also deserving of censorship. And to some degree that still exists for children, but we did actually win the campaign against restrictions around this extraordinary category, mm -hmm. made up category of speech in relation to adults. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the idea was that the companies would have to make up rules around harmful speech that's completely lawful and then enforce those um, basically to censor lawful speech. It's always all the non-crime hate incidences. This kind of thing, but it wouldn't even need to be hate. I mean, define harm. And mm. that, that's been obviously a controversial mm -hmm. point as well in the bill. Um, How have they landed on the bill with that definition? Is it now just illegal? Have they got rid of the idea of harmful? So the, the mo most of the powers that will have impact are around crime. But where they've landed on this legal but harmful thing is okay so we we won in terms of for adults we we don't have the legal but harmful creation of, mm -hmm. of a speech category but the new rules are that the tech companies must consistently enforce their terms and conditions and then there is a string of expectations around what those terms and conditions are um which so is, they could include things which aren't illegal in this do. country and they do include and they do like so what? Well, for example, I mean, there have been very controversial things in the past, haven't there? I mean, of course, you've had for a long time, all of the companies said anything that doesn't accord with World Health Organization policies and views on COVID, for example, mm -hmm. is not permitted on the platform. Mm -hmm. Different platforms have had different approaches mm -hmm. to words like cis and turf or misgendering and all these kinds of things. Um, some really controversial areas that have created huge conversations around speech which is um, one of the reasons that I find this approach, I think, I think it would end in, in disaster because whereas before we could say it's the domain of private companies, they can make whatever rules that they like, people can choose whether to be there or not. Now, actually, the British government has said to those companies, you need to have terms and conditions on various different areas of speech and you must enforce them and if you don't enforce them you could face serious repercussions from Ofcom mm -hmm. so for example when Elon Musk not that long ago decided that it would be banned on the on Twitter or now X from posting the whereabouts of his private plane you have a state obligation now to make sure that no one is posting about Elon Musk's plane on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's an uncomfortable merging of private terms and conditions with state obligations, which aggrandizes these terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. And I do think that because of the declining free speech culture that we've had in this country, we have somehow come to a position where we're we're accepting this very corporatized, privatized approach to free speech. From our perspective, the main thing that the government needs to be saying to the platforms and the extent of the government's responsibility is to protect its citizens' right to free speech. 
And that means you actually have to proactively do things mm -hmm. to protect our right to free speech. What's actually happened is we've gone in the opposite direction where the government is encouraging restrictions on perfectly lawful speech. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned there that you had made a progress with the adults side of things. And so is, is am I right in understanding then there's the, the online safety bill has a different rule for adults as it does for children. Yeah. What's the difference then? So, I mean, this is going to basically result in the age gating of the internet and no one really knows yet how that's going to work out. Mm -hmm. And are we going to need IDs to go online? And that we're seeing that as a growing trend as well, that platforms are saying, you know, they want to see evidence of age, whether that's giving credit card or it could go towards passports, driving licenses, facial recognition. Mm -hmm. And I think these things are likely that we'll see in, in, in future years because there's been such an emphasis on young people's experience online and shielding them from harm, which is what the bill aims to do. Now, I think everyone is surely in agreement that the internet can be an unpleasant place for young people there are lots of risks you can find some really horrible stuff mm -hmm. um kids can be mean to each other there are serious risks uh with young people being online but i think the idea that you can kind of export the responsibility for protecting children away from parents and towards tech companies mm -hmm is problematic. Yep. And if you go down that road, you're going to end up giving them license to collect huge amounts of data. And I thought that was something that we all agreed was controversial and bad, mm -hmm. that, you know, we've got Facebook as more information about the global population than probably any intelligence agency in the world. And yet we, we're going to end up giving them more and more data, probably then identity data, and the right to control what people can and can't see. I think that, that responsibility needs to be kind of on devices with parents in the home, um, yeah, so I'm quite interested in that, in that, how we actually help parents. So just for context, the online safety bill came after the tragic suicide of Molly Russell, a 14-year-old girl who'd, I think she was depressed and then um, because of negative stuff that she discovered on, on social media. And it is popular in Britain, as, and I'm sure you would agree with that we, we want to protect children not only with examples like Molly Russell, but let's say child pornography or child sex trafficking. There, there is a problem there. And like with Islamist terrorists, most of us would be prepared to sacrifice, for those things, would we be prepared to sacrifice some amount of our privacy because we would see that as a, a greater evil. But there are obviously other consequences once you open that door. But assuming, and maybe I'm wrong to assume, that you, you do think we need to protect children in that sense. What is the correct policy that would help parents uh, protecting their children and protecting children? I think, I mean, first of all, there has been a temptation by politicians and others to blame everything on the internet, any kind of social problem. And I think, particularly where mental health is concerned, I think it absolutely plays a role. But I think we have to be careful about particularly where suicidality is involved about attributing any one cause because um from all the expertise in this area it's, it's never really that simple mm. and there's often a constellation of factors that are involved in ill mental health and the internet is in some cases a factor it may be a significant factor but it's a factor and i think that has to be taken into account i do think there's more that the platform's 
can do. And for example, being open about how the algorithms work, I think is really important because if you are designing a product in a way where you are feeding someone deliberately certain types of of content of any type to be honest with you um, that raises some serious questions and people ought to be able to often it's it's based on your personal data Mm -hmm. you have rights over your personal data for precisely this reason so you should be able to know hang on why am i seeing the world through this lens it's a very powerful thing so i think laws about transparency and algorithms are really important so that we know what the deal is when we're having this online experience but to some degree as well i do think that nowadays you know it's putting kids online in front of screens is something that i hope this is too um i'm not going to be too unpopular for saying this but it's something that a lot of parents are doing and then not always wanting to take responsibility for what happens and you know the, the the truth is that when you're doing that you're just unlocking the door to the whole global world Mm -hmm. and putting it your child's fingertips Mm -hmm. so you have to take responsibility for that and there's no amount of tech company control censorship data collection id collection that is going to fully mitigate that reality and Mm -hmm. i think we need to make young people educated and literate about the internet and how to use it Mm -hmm. and parents likewise rather than just kind of exporting that you know fundamentally parental responsibility to profit-making companies so with let's say pornography or child pornography and this is what's come up this week at the house of lords is they with as i mentioned earlier they want to give access to the government in encrypted messaging to prevent child pornography which is spread on telegram and signal etc do you think that that's a bad thing i disagree with the premise that that's why they want that power and i'll explain why so already Um, encrypted services like WhatsApp, for instance, send hundreds of thousands of tips to a child exploitation helpline. Do they? Yes. And we all know it's a bit like when we have panics around other types of of sexual violence, which are, are merited. But when you actually look at how well reports are investigated and policed, it's often very, very poorly. So we have more data than ever on child abusers because of the internet, because it's so visible, because it's out there, and there's simply too much for them to please. Hmm. So I disagree that there's a problem with being able to find where this stuff is going on. There's absolutely masses of it out there, Hmm. and it's under-policed. And I would have taken all of that premise that was used in the bill so much more seriously if there were anything in there about increasing police capacity to investigate and prosecute these crimes about how they work with tech companies to do it. there isn't all there is is we basically need uh, a key to see everyone's communications mm-hmm. well i worked uh, as in lobbied on a few years ago a bill called the investigatory powers act which was kind of overhaul of our surveillance laws in the uk in fact for a long, long time, for decades, we've had the the state authorities have the ability to, on a targeted basis, get into encrypted communications. Mm -hmm. So if you are a suspected child abuser or terrorist, don't think that your phone is, Mm -hmm. you know, everything on there is going to be private. It's going to be accessed and, you know, um, and so it should be on a targeted basis. And in the Investigatory Powers Act, um, really, really strong new powers on that were, were introduced as well hacking powers explicitly for the first time on the statute book that you can not only compel someone to hand over encrypted 
communications, but you can actually hack phones or, or with a lawful basis. But what the... Did you support that? I think uh, it was done way too broadly in the in the bill. And actually, the Investigatory Powers Act allows the state to hack entire countries if it wants to. It's an absolutely massive, massive power. But yes, I do think that, that in a targeted manner, hacking powers have a place. Uh-huh. Absolutely, I do think that. What the online safety bill does is quite different. It's not spooks. It's not something that has judicial authorization. It's Ofcom having the ability to require that companies like WhatsApp, Meta, Signal, maybe um, encrypted communications channels, redesign their software to put spyware on your phone, to look on your phone at what images and content you're sending. Hmm. Um, it's called client-side scanning. Uh-huh. And that's really quite extreme. It's way more invasive. It's as invasive. The, the first power I re- reference is having your ho- phone hacked. The second one is having spyware on it. I yeah. mean, it's both you, you, you don't have control over your device in the way that you, that you should. Uh-huh. But the, critically with this Ofcom power, it would mean that people have spyware on their phones in a way that is not targeted you're talking about the whole right. population, everyone who uses WhatsApp. It's kind of extraordinary when you say the words out loud and realise how bad things are, mm-hmm. how bad the state of privacy is in this country, that we so have devalued the right to have a private conversation, mm-hmm. that it's a non-ridiculous suggestion and actually survived in the legislation. To, to this day, it's going to pass, mm-hmm. that we can have the equivalent of state microphones and cameras in our pockets. Silsky, if I can quote the mighty Davos man himself, Klaus Schwab, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to be afraid of. Mm. To people who are not worried about that, who feel like it's not going to come for them, it's not, they're a normal person, it's not going to come for them, why should they worry about this bill? Well, first of all, if since most people have nothing to hide, the state should have no interest in looking at your communications. We should all be aware there's a problem there that they want to see mm-hmm. what people are sending to each other. And I actually don't doubt that it would start with looking for extreme imagery, mm-hmm. for example. But people all have photos of their family Mm-hmm. including young family, children, mm-hmm. on the beach, maybe. You can see how easily this can go wrong, mm-hmm. how people could be wrongly and falsely accused, which is something that, that happens. But also that most of us want to protect those photos. Mm-hmm. I actually don't trust other people, probably men that I don't know, mm-hmm. um, who you've sure. never met, having a, a, a lens into your phone and into your communications. Mm-hmm. Um, that creates really significant risks as well. So I think there are the kind of obvious things to be worried about. But the bigger thing that we all ought to be worried about is that we are losing the right to have a private conversation and we're losing the right to speak freely. Mm-hmm. And they're under this very kind of casual attack where uh, people seem not not quite aware about how, how serious that situation is and how much we are losing those fundamental rights we've seen mission we don't need to really hammer on about mission creep at this stage because we've seen it happen before Mm -hmm. how 
We started off with ANPR cameras as a counter-terror measure. Look what road cameras are being used for mm-hmm. now. You know, we started with surveillance, um, you know, interception as a, as a counter-terror measure. It's now being used for any any number of things. It's being used yeah. to kind of monitor the population at large, mm-hmm. not just bad people, not just terrorists. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. What about undercover spies? Mm-hmm. People thought that they were targeting serious organised crime gangs mm-hmm. and again terrorists. And we find out that they're infiltrating environmental protest groups Mm -hmm. the way i see it and and uh, or the way that i'm concerned by it is if these laws come in we are also seeing simultaneously for example our great mayor sadiq khan talking about these c40 cities and he's uh, where he's speaking with mayors from other cities across the world and they're discussing ways to tackle the quote-unquote climate crisis with policy including that we'll only be allowed to buy three pieces of clothing a year fly once every three years and we're seeing this already in london with ules so they could use this technology i'm imagining to as these new small regulations come in to monitor us to see and uh, see whether we're breaking them and this is also already happening in China, and we can talk about face recognition because you've mm. done a great report on this. Because I think this crosses over very neatly in there. In China, they use face recognition to stop you using public transport. You need it to get toilet paper at public restrooms, and there's a whole social credit system that's all used. Like, what's frightening to me is the creep there. If, mm. if it's cheesy to say the word mission creep, but I think there is a mission creep into mm. that sort of these slow these laws slowly coming through mm. that we don't vote on, that we don't necessarily agree on, which could have serious impact on our uh, civil liberties. I think absolutely. I, th- I think we are seeing and will see more of surveillance used for policy enforcement. I mean, wasn't that really the case during covid to some degree, mm-hmm. that surveillance was used as a as a policy in, enforcer, not just to catch terrorists. Mm-hmm. And particularly with one area that that's beginning, and I think we're going to see a bill on this depending on elections and when that comes, but um, is certainly around DWP and, and benefits, using surveillance to decide whether somebody could be involved in, in making welfare decisions, mm. certainly in in that area, and I'm hearing on the grapevine, there's there's more on that to come, and the way that AI might be used with data collection um, mm. in the welfare system, which is very concerning to us. It's about casting this huge net of suspicion over the whole population, and people sit there at first and say, I'm not a terrorist, so it's not me. Mm. I'm not this, it's not me. And then, yeah, eventually it's the kind of thing that, that affects people. And I, I think actually as well, quite aside from facial recognition, We're seeing that trend with the disinformation enforcers as well because the act of monitoring the internet and speech at large is certainly not a, it's not a counter-terror measure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about narrative and it's about promoting authority is the, is the quote that's often used. And to some degree, narrative control. And that's a lot what I think we've uncovered in the Ministry of Truth investigation that we did. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a side question mm. just on the on the issue of, of these tech companies? Do you consider them the public square? So for free speech to be protected, we have to accept that that is the public square. I think de facto, large social media companies form part of the public square. Yeah. Mm, because legally, I don't think that's the case in America. Mm-hmm. Legally, the precedent is, and this goes back to 1970, uh, it was Lloyd Corp versus... Tanner, where some Vietnam, anti-Vietnam war protesters were putting leaflets out in a shopping mall and it went, ended up going all the way to Supreme Court 
and the protesters lost because the Supreme Court decided that the shopping malls were private property. And so in, if that is a continuation of, of that precedent, then these big tech companies, Twitter, etc., they are private companies and they have no responsibility to protect our speech. Now, it's slightly different when, as we're seeing in Missouri versus Biden, that government is encouraging or, or even scaring them into silencing people. That is absolutely explicitly breaking the First Amendment, as we're seeing. But with the companies themselves, if they are private, is it really the public square? I mean, of course, this is a huge debate. There are differences between the US and the European UK model on this as well, because we have the European Convention on Human Rights, mm -hmm. of course. And that means that the British government has a duty to protect our freedom of speech in this country. And, and certainly in terms of discrimination, I mean, you can't censor people in a discriminatory way, mm -hmm. whether you are a public authority or a private company, mm -hmm. um, unless it's really, really justified. We also have the expectation that companies, because of... Um, businesses have signed up to protect human rights effectively um, at, at the international level. We have the expectation that they protect the right to free speech and all of them say that they do. I think part of the problem that we have is that the kind of shared understanding of what freedom of speech means mm -hmm. and what privacy means has mm -hmm. shifted so much. Mm -hmm. Like our understanding of what these civil liberties are, that the right to free speech, it sounds cliche to say because it's such a basic standard but it does seem to be missed particularly between people you know even a bit younger than us mm. that the right to free speech is for people that you disagree with and speech that you don't like and that is offensive as much as it is for anything else and mm. unless you're defending that type of speech mm -hmm. you're not defending the right to free speech mm -hmm. and I think particularly on the left unfortunately that's something that has just been lost because you don't really see people on the left so much defending speech rights for people that offend maybe their principles and, and, and points of view. Mm -hmm. um, there has been a whole realignment on this. And I think particularly where disinformation is concerned, and in particular, that's the litmus test for how much we've lost track of what freedom of speech really means mm -hmm. of course in a world where you have free speech you, you you have the right and ability and in fact it's a necessity to be wrong about mm. things that's mm. how you discover what's right that's mm -hmm. like a enlightenment rationality principle isn't mm -hmm. it that it's through the journey of discovery and testing ideas mm -hmm. and making mistakes that you arrive at truth you don't arrive at truth by listening to a centralized global authority mm -hmm. and then saying yes i will repeat that mm -hmm. you know which was like the world health organization kind of model during covid where oh, yeah. you know top down yeah. uh, was the mo model of like truth discovery and that's quite disturbing mm -hmm. and bad ideas unless there is the free speech for the truth to knock them off their their perch mm. they run riot so mm. it's, it's an absolute necessity yeah. you, you mentioned europe and disinformation so the the digital service act which i don't think is yet the digital services act which is not yet in action but it is, seems to me to be the eu equivalent of the online safety bill yeah. although they explicitly say that they will protect freedom of expression as un under Article 10 of the um, European Court for mm -hmm. Human Rights. But they also say they're going to tackle disinformation mm -hmm. as part of their remit. 
What do I need to know about the Digital Services Act? Is it the same thing as the online safety bill? It's very similar. It's now in force for the biggest companies. And I think further obligations come into force for smaller companies down the line. Mm -hmm. And it obliges companies to develop methods and rules on a series of online harms, essentially, some of which are sensible, some of which are around misinformation and disinformation. If they're not deemed to be doing enough on those issues, then they can be fined significant amounts as under the online safety bill. So, so yeah, internationally, there have been lots of pieces of legislation that are very similar in this respect, that it's like... Um, a mixture of hard and soft power because yes it's legislative they're legal obligations but they're quite woolly states are basically saying to these companies you have to take serious action on misinformation disinformation or else and Mm. you decide what you want to do about that now of course Mm. uh, with the threat of fines hanging over them they're going to take quite extreme action and in terms of then deciding what's misinformation what's disinformation Mm -hmm. effectively often where that ends up with the threat of state issued fines over your head is that you allow what states like and get rid of what they don't like Mm -hmm. and What we found in the Ministry of Truth investigation, obviously it's happened in the US and it's happened in the EU, is that there's this hotline between government departments and content moderation teams, social media companies, where they can relay the things that they think should be taken. Oh, we saw that with the Twitter files. Exactly. And we saw that in the Ministry of Truth investigation that we did in the UK. Mm -hmm. So, for example... We know that the requests, uh, well, they don't call them requests. Um, it's a bit more like you should take a look at this that comes from the uh, these flags that come from the UK government. And mm-hmm. um, we found that of all the flags that went from the UK government to Twitter during the pandemic, 60% of them didn't violate Twitter rules, huh. which is extraordinary. That tells us, you know, for all the limited information we have about what was going on, that's a really worrying indication of how far they were going. Because we're certainly talking about lawful speech. Okay, this is not unlawful speech. Anything unlawful would have to come down straight away. Bearing in mind, at the time, the rules were, unless a point of view accorded with with the World Health Organization, then it could be deemed misinformation. Mm. It wasn't breaching that rule then, presumably. So, you know, the rules on Twitter despite Musk, I'm not having any, you know, of this, you know, now it's a free speech zone. I don't, that just factually doesn't check out at all. Um, But the rules are expansive now. They were very expansive then. 60% of these flags not even breaching Twitter rules. I mean, what the hell is going on? We've got censorship, a censorship drive coming from the heart of government going to private companies to try and suppress the voices of British people saying lawful things. Mm -hmm. I really think this is something that deserves a full investigation. So this is something I don't get, and I wonder whether you had insight into it, which is that it seems to me part of the motivation that Elon Musk bought Twitter was that he was seeing these sort of things, and he, being a free speech absolutist, I guess, or at least at the time, was as concerned as you clearly are, and wanted to do something about it. And yet, with the Digital Services Act, it seems the little research I've done to it is that he supports that. Mm-hmm. That seems to be very confusing to me, particularly with this disinformation, tackling disinformation, given that that's such a loose term. Mm. It could mean anything. Why would he support this bill? 
Well, first of all, I think that he's been very confused about his free speech principles and clearly he's he's gone headfirst into a kind of culture war um, approach to it, in my view. If he is serious about free speech, I'd ask that he publishes all of the requests that have come from the UK government mm. about censorship, which we've asked in writing. We've got good contacts at Twitter. We've made this request at high levels. If he is watching, then I would ask that he publishes and discloses that in full. I think that would show a serious commitment to free speech. Mm-hmm. That hasn't happened. There are the continuation of rules that go far beyond the rule of law um, in terms of what you can and can't say on Twitter. The one perspective that I can understand, and I think he's gone near making this point on a couple of occasions, is that if a government democratically, if if a democratic government decides to, through the democratic process, pass a law in terms of what the social media company shouldn't shouldn't do, the democratic thing to do is to respect that law. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Um, Which is different from the online safety bill because that's outsourcing yeah. that that uh, decision to the tech companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, if a government does that, well, then it's the, the work of civil society and, and, frankly, of our parliamentarians to make sure that we don't pass censorious laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the light of, as you say, it's kind of like this fudge of soft lawmaking where the laws are that the companies have to... There's a lot of latitude. There's a lot of room for them to decide how they take on things like misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. So proof being the pudding to some degree about what how they decide to take that on and what they decide to do, how they decide to respond to it. I think it would be important that if they are getting requests to take down lawful speech, that those are resisted. I think that's a really clear, bright red line that you can draw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is that if the platforms feel that laws have been passed that ask them to censor things, that would mean that then the right to free speech wasn't being protected, that a company might look to challenge that legally mm-hmm. in the same way that actually at Big Brother Watch we are. So we we are gearing up for a legal challenge against the UK's counter-disinformation unit. Really? Because it's our understanding from what we know that they have negatively impacted people's right to to free speech in in this country Uh Um, we're gathering more evidence about that we've got a crowdfunder and um we'll go go the whole way um legally if we have to wow um we've talked a little bit about facial recognition already you have just done a report at big brother watch what can you tell us about the state of facial recognition in the uk Mm. Facial recognition is a quite extreme surveillance capability. And one of our main interests is live facial recognition, where you have a camera that scans your face and tries to determine who you are in real time. It's the kind of thing that is seen fairly commonly in China, and it has been used in Russia at protests, for example. Around the rest of the world, particularly the democratic world, it's a very controversial surveillance tactic. But unfortunately, in the UK, it has been used by police more and more often. And we're seeing now, uh, post-COVID, suddenly a really rapid growth in the use of the tactic. So it was used in London this weekend. Hmm. Um, the police took out live facial recognition cameras. Some, it's also For in the what, private sector. What used how? So at the moment, they will take out a police van with a camera on top, facial recognition camera, and scan people as they walk past. So typically you might scan tens of thousands of people. In fact, this was used at the coronation. 
So tens of thousands of people obviously were scanned. They're just the collecting data. They're not, they're not looking for criminals or anything like that. They then have a watch list of people that they're looking for. And they always say, we're only looking for serious criminals. But what we actually find is that they can include people who aren't suspected of any offence. In some cases, they put people on there who have possibly have mental health problems, people that they think might pose a harm to themselves or to others. There have been protesters put on these um, lists. So you can load tens of thousands of faces onto a facial recognition watch list and then take the camera out and see who walks past. And it effectively means that you're a walking ID card. Mm. Um, I think what's most troubling about this um, is obviously a serious expansion of the surveillance state um, to have live facial recognition cameras in in the democratic world. And, you know, you don't need to read an awful lot of dystopian fiction or watch many dystopian films to understand where that can go Mm -hmm. um, to have, you know, real-time, basically AI prison guards on the streets, you know, watching people, being able to identify people from street corners without their consent, without asking them who Mm -hmm. they are, asking to show an ID or whatever. But it reverses the the presumption of innocence. And I think that's been a theme that we've seen really Mm -hmm. over the past 20 years is that increasingly the suspicion from the state towards the public is really quite extreme and we are treated like a nation of of suspects where you now have to prove your innocence Mm -hmm. in a way the reason that id cards were so controversial is because you know the notion of the freeborn englishman i don't have to i haven't show my Mm. identity to anyone prove myself to anyone or answer any question unless you've suspected me of doing something wrong Mm -hmm. i'm just go you go about your business freely Mm -hmm. with these technologies that principle is being turned on its head where the state says now i have a right to know who you are where you are in terms of online safety bill what's on your phone what photos you have who you send them to mm-hmm. um at all time to just so we know that you're not a bad person so mm. that you're not a criminal yeah that's a, a truly disturbing um kind of approach to security if state. anyone's not already convinced by that being disturbing and weren't convinced by what happened through covid then I suggest, as I said earlier, look at what's happening in China, where they're ahead of this. And London, if I'm not mistaken, has, outside of China, is the city with the most amount of CCTV cameras in the world. So we're pretty close to that dystopia, it seems. China is the blueprint for for a high-tech surveillance state. That's where all the, you know, a lot of tech is trained and modelled and that's how it works. And you would be surprised, or not maybe, by the amount of people in the police that I've spoken to, who when I have used the China comparison as a obviously as negative because it's a genocidal, authoritarian dictatorship, Uh they've said well the crime rates are very low with no hint of irony, genuinely the reason in some degree we import so much Chinese tech into this country is because there are lots of people unfortunately that actually don't see that as a big problem Mm. Can we talk about the Chinese tech? So you mentioned before we started talking off camera there's Facewatch, which is English tech firm, but then there's Hike Vision Camera, which is a Chinese. Is uh, and so, what's the difference between the, are they, are these are the two main companies that, for facial recognition in the UK? Well, Hike Vision has been used with facial recognition with FaceWatch in southern co-op supermarkets of all places. Um, but actually, Hike Vision is uh, without facial recognition, although they do have lots of advanced capabilities. Mm-hmm. Often, Hike Vision is is everywhere. If you look in your office, your kids' school, GP surgery, you'll see these cameras everywhere, Hike Vision cameras. Mm-hmm. They're the biggest surveillance camera company in the world. 
owned by the Chinese government. We have hundreds of thousands, if not more, hike vision cameras all over the UK. The majority of the cameras owned by public authorities in this country are hike vision. Mm -hmm. And from our point of view, this is a really big problem. First of all, from a security point of view, these are known to have vulnerabilities. They're made by the Chinese state effectively. And, you know, we're even seeing recently stories coming out about the extent of Chinese spying in the UK um, and the risks that that can pose. I mean, many of these cameras are in government department buildings. But but as far as we know, it's just the hardware. So we don't know that the Chinese... It's not, not not necessarily Huawei 2.0 because the CCP don't necessarily have access to the footage from the cameras. Uh, well, well, I think this is a question that the the security and intelligence agencies um, hopefully are looking into and answering. But it's certainly a risk. I think it's it's more than Huawei 2.0. It's Huawei on steroids <laughs> because these cameras are everywhere. They can often yeah. have microphones, advanced analytic capabilities. And there have been documented cases. There was an Italian investigation where they found that one of these cameras was sending vast amounts of unauthorized signals to servers in China. If that were happening, the security consequences are so severe, Mm. you can barely begin Mm. to get your mind around it. Mm. Um, So it's something that absolutely needs to be looked at. Other than the fact that that means that millions and millions of pounds of taxpayers' money are are going to a genocidal regime Mm -hmm. that's involved in, you know, these these hike fishing cameras are on the corners of the concentration camps where Uyghurs are being interned. I mean, yeah, purely from an ethical point of view, from Mm -hmm. a human rights point of view, this tech should not be anywhere in this country. From a security point of view, it's very, very concerning. About two months ago, I think, they found the a CCP spy outside of MI6 pointed, which is it's, it's beyond all, all well, because it's so... It's actually it's quite funny how ludicrous it seems more like a Graham Greene novel that, that you know, they can collect this sort of data on us and um, absolutely terrifying at mm, the same time. Mm. So uh, with facial recognition, do, uh, the Home Office said that uh, they've been lobbying for more use of this. Legally, where are we at with, with facial recognition? Is there a sort of... What can be said about it to, to restrict it? Mm. Yeah, so we found recently um, through freedom of information requests that Chris Vilk, the policing minister, has been having meetings with a facial recognition company called Facewatch whilst they were under investigation by the data watchdog, the ICO. Mm. And the ICO did find that this company had breached a whole string of privacy laws, basically privacy obligations under data protection law, in terms of how this technology is being used. In fact, in retail settings, you know, on shoppers, on us when we go in supermarkets, it's actually the co-op supermarket in particular in this case, mm-hmm. uh, from a, a complaint that we made. So the policing minister is meeting this company whilst they're under investigation and then saying to the ICO, the regulator, unless we get a favourable outcome, I'm going to write to you publicly and say how important I think this technology is. Mm. Basically threatening them. And and to us, that reads sort of uncomfortably close to an interference with what's supposed to be an independent investigation. What we've seen in the rest of Europe is that where companies start trying to use facial recognition surveillance, 
regulators have stepped in and stopped it because they don't want because you know the law stops it and actually we have the same law as Europe on on data protection at the moment that's mm-hmm. about to change and I think you know we don't want to become a surveillance state and I think everyone recognizes at the moment there are problems with shoplifting there, there are problems with law enforcement full stop you can have your shop robbed you can have clear pictures of who who it is they can come in every day and do the same thing and you'd be very lucky if the police do anything about it uh-huh. i think we've read enough stories about yeah. that but for the answer to be to build this giant surveillance state it, it's scary because it changes the nature of the country that we live in but it's also ludicrous because it's we're not struggling for evidence on these serious criminals it's more to do with police resourcing and whatever chronic mismanagement has gone on in policing for a very very long time mm. but unfortunately i think that some of these advanced surveillance technologies are now being touted as the silver bullet answer and if we go down that road we're going to end up in a very strange place because policing is in a really bad position um, and there's a lot of extreme surveillance technology out there that people will try to sell in to plug the gaps. You we made a comment earlier in the conversation that the police you, uh, seem to support the surveillance thing by referencing China and how little crime there is there. Is that to suggest that the, the police more generally, do you think the police support this direction rather than having support in, I don't know, more funding, uh, more support from the government. Is this where the police want to go? I'm talking about senior people in the police. Sometimes when I speak to officers who are working on facial recognition, there are different views. I mean, bear in mind, these people are... If you're a police officer who's on a facial recognition deployment, you're stood on the street looking at an iPad waiting for a match to flag. It's not traditional policing. And the technology is wrong a lot. I think statistics at the moment is around 90% of the flags have been misidentifications, actually wrongly flagging people. Huh. Um, 90%? Yeah. So it's been completely useless tech it's been It has been completely useless. Um, it will get better, there's no doubt about that. How much is it costing us? They've never put a number on it, but it's way into the millions. Wow. That's our money, of course. Yes. Uh, millions spent on something with a 90% failure rate. Great. On a more light note, it seems we've pretty heavily covered dystopian Britain 2023 just there. BBC Verify, I wanted to get your opinion on this. Uh, Last week, Mariana Spring was revealed to have lied on her CV, which I see as a little tad ironic. But Mm. what's the Big Brother Watch take on BBC Verify? Is it something that uh, is a good to tackle misinformation and disinformation? Or is it a little bit farcical? I just think it's something we expect all journalists to do and that all journalists have always done. I think the what's problematic is the idea that it's a, a special category of new journalism that has unique authority as well. And I think then in particular to you know have one individual who's kind of the face of it who might not be as qualified as other colleagues in in the organization you know that that obviously has has come with with real risks mm-hmm. i think the personal attacks are obviously horrible yeah, um, yeah, and then justify a lot of this kind of ongoing battle between this whole conversation around um, should we have things like BBC Verify and around particular correspondence and so on. But I also think we can't hold back on on criticising it. I mean, this is basically a whole new category of journalism that's been invented overnight Mm -hmm. that 
you know, license fee uh, payers are having to having to foot the bill for that often seems to be of a fairly poor quality. And I think that there are, I'm sure you are hearing and, you know, many journalists and people in Westminster are hearing that there are some journalists in the BBC and other organisations that have sprung up with these roles that have a bit more of a critical view about just how new and unique and special this disinformation mm. correspondent type uh, reporting really is. Everyone loves good journalism, you know, I don't, mm. but I, I think there's something about the claim to unique credentials and authority mm-hmm. and also where the attention is focused is highly political. That's obvious. Mm. A huge amount of incorrect information was given during covid about for example the impact of you know you will not get covid if you have a vaccine uh you will not be able to pass on covid with a vaccine mm. vaccine passports are the key to freedom we simply can't survive without them da, da, da. never really saw those fact checked in the same way that you saw say you know a really marginal out there view that was shared by a few people mm-hmm. on a corner of the internet that was then used to mischaracterize and malign critics of government policy, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Seems like a surface-level manifestation of two drastically different worldviews that we're enjoying or suffering in Britain, which Mm. is one where there's a world of disinformation that is a great evil that must be tackled, and another of uh, people who believe in free speech. And and, and it's... uh, it seems like a, there's this tension between it because I, I, just to speak to progressive friends who support this uh, and, and then I speak to, say, liberal friends who are against it and there's that tension. It's, mm. It is quite a popular... It seems to me quite popular amongst some groups, the, the BBC Verify. Yes, uh, but isn't, as always, isn't the truth somewhere in between? I mean, like, disinformation is a real problem, mm-hmm. um, particularly between states you know at a state level of of course disinformation is a real thing and you would hope that journalists would help to identify where it crops up and what the impact is Mm. um but i think it's become a bit more to do with policing individuals and what people say to each other and that's just like the hustle and bustle of conversations like imagine a disinformation agent in a pub you know, going around policing and correcting everyone and what they're saying and determining mm-hmm. and what... That's kind of what it's like on, on Twitter to By the way, that's degree. happening. That's what Sadiq Khan's mate, <laughs> mate whatever uh, campaign was. So that's, you know... Yeah, I don't want to give them any ideas. <laughs> but it's kind, of the, it's kind of the equivalent thing, isn't it? You know, basically we're policing speech. I think the most obvious, to me, comparison with counter-disinformation is counter-extremism that we saw in the noughties. So it comes from something that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. It involves then a degree of social surveillance and peer-to-peer surveillance mm-hmm. and peer-to-peer policing. And it can so obviously be... It orientates around a loose, woolly definition that no one quite knows what it is. Mm-hmm. And it can so obviously be exploited for political power Mm -hmm. and to increase political power i think the difference is that in the noughties when there was a whole string of of powers grown and and, and laws passed around counter-extremism that the left in particular was was a bit more prepared to take a critical view and be a bit kind of switched on about the way that that could be politically exploited this time it it seems as though a lot of civil society has been co-opted and bought in and particularly in the digital rights space i have to say i find it really really 
disappointing that so many of the groups that we ordinarily work really constructively with and really well with have somewhat been kind of co-opted into that as well and they can't quite articulate how that isn't a free speech violation yeah and in a way that just didn't happen with counter-extremism that's the fault line right there it's where is the free speech and then where is this such a a great evil that we need to tackle it and Mm. how much of free speech and that debate continues as you say from the 90s. Mm. Um, Silky Carlo, what a fascinating conversation. Where can people uh, follow you and find uh, your work? Uh, we're bigbrotherwatch.org.uk um, at bigbrotherwatch on Twitter. I'm at Silky Carlo and uh, yeah, we've got a huge amount coming up in the rest of the year. What's next? As well. So we're gearing up for um, further legal action in relation to the, the counter disinformation yeah. unit. Yep, that's going to de- definitely be one to watch and deepening our investigation on that and upping our campaign against facial recognition. So, you know, I do think this is a, it's quite a unique moment in time that we're living through with the, this extraordinary growth of technology and how invasive a lot of the surveillance and censorship technology is for anyone who is concerned about this at all please please follow us support us um, because I do think we've got the, the power to make a difference now we've won some of our big campaigns you know we won the campaign against the invention of legal but harmful speech mm. um, we know and we won the campaign against uh, mandatory vaccine passports oh. um, that was one of our biggest campaigns that we've ever ran two legal challenges that went into that as well I think we know that when we have public support behind us we can fight these David and Goliath fights and we can win and now's the time to do it. Brilliant stuff. Silky Carlo, thank you so much. Thank you.